0: It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie.
1: Coming up on episode number 53 of Sports Day Plus. At 6:30, it's a replay of my two-segment conversation with legendary stand-up comedian Brian Regan, head of his show at ACL Live on Sunday night. At 6:15, I'm joined by musician, comedian, and actor Craig Robinson, who's headlining at Cap City Comedy Club this weekend. And a mere seconds, Jim Harbaugh bolts for the NFL. And Mel Kuyper's first mock draft of 2024 is light on Longhorns in the first round. I am your host, Trey Elling. You can give me a follow on Twitter, at Courtesy Wave. And do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. Well, it is official now. Word started to leak yesterday, and I think it was being reported as a done deal last night, but Jim Harbaugh is officially leaving his alma mater, the University of Michigan, after leading the Wolverines to a national championship to return to the National Football League. Not really a surprise to anybody, considering that Harbaugh and his program have been under the microscope of the NCAA this year and going into the offseason, saw Harbaugh suspended for a handful of games to start the year, and there's a possibility there will be more punishment before it's all said and done having to do with the program's sign-stealing scandal. And maybe more than anything else, because you know that Michigan people would have fought tooth and nail to support Jim Harbaugh through whatever the NCAA throws at him, it probably comes down for Jim Harbaugh to what it does for a lot of guys who make the jump from college to the NFL right now, and that is the college gig is nonstop. You don't get an offseason, you don't get a break, and that's because of NIL in the transfer portal, forcing you to stay on your guys from the moment you start recruiting them in high school or from whatever other school they're at where you snag them in the transfer portal all the way up to the point where your program is done with them. Either their eligibility runs out or you decide that you don't want them anymore. And look, there are some guys who are program guys. You're not having to stay nearly as on top of at a certain point, but there are no guarantees right now with a lack of parameters, a lack of rules and regulations at the college level. And so for a guy like Harbaugh, who accomplished that ultimate goal with his alma mater, he can get paid as much, if not more now, at the NFL level with the Los Angeles Chargers and not have to deal with the BS that coaches do on the college side. With the Chargers, Harbaugh gets a franchise quarterback with Justin Herbert, and there are a lot of good pieces on both sides of the ball. The problem was not talent acquisition with the Chargers in the Brandon Staley era. It was the guy on the sidelines making the most important decisions and then also those most responsible for building both the offense and the defense. And look, I get it. Justin Herbert had some not-so-clutch moments at times in fourth quarters of tight ball games, turnovers, incompletions, things like that. But I'm pinning a lot of that on Brandon Staley right now. And if there's a guy who can get things that have some good pieces going for them, but haven't tied it all together just yet, who can turn that into more of a winning formula, it is Jim Harbaugh. So congratulations, Chargers fans. The few of you who may still exist, probably a lot of folks in San Diego still root for them, begrudgingly, even though they now play, what, a couple of hours north of that town, actually have a friend who lives in Liberty Hill who's a big Chargers fan. Things don't seem so destitute now. You've gone from rags with Brandon Staley to riches with Jim Harbaugh. He's been successful at every stop, and there's no reason to think that he won't be in San Diego in very short order. His NFL record, by the way, with the San Francisco 49ers, it did include... One Super Bowl appearance was 44-19-1. This guy knows how to win. Knows how to build a roster, too, as he proved in San Francisco and with Michigan more recently. And he's not going to need the amount of time that he did at Michigan to prove to be successful, either. All right, sticking with the college-slash-NFL theme, ESPN's Mel Kuyper, Released his first first round mock draft just a few days ago. The expected cast of characters at the top in this draft. I know there's conversations with the Chicago Bears right now. What they do with Justin Fields, they take Caleb Williams, if they keep both quarterbacks, or they trade away from that number one pick if they feel good about Justin Fields' development. But Mel Kuyper does have them taking Caleb Williams, the QB out of USC right now at one. The Commanders at two go with Jaden Daniels from LSU, and the New England Patriots get Drake May as their signal caller from North Carolina at three. Just to give you the other two names from the top five, the Cardinals select Marvin Harrison Jr., giving Kyler Murray another weapon on that offense. And the L.A. Chargers, speaking of... Jim Harbaugh, you know how he values tight ends. This pick makes sense for a lot of reasons. You could also see them going offensive or defensive line too, but this mock at least has the Chargers selecting Brock Bowers, the extremely talented tight end out of Georgia at five. As far as Longhorns are concerned, it does seem like there is a possibility of any one or a handful of four or five guys who could end up going in the first round. The defensive linemen, Sweat and Murphy. Jatavian Sanders, speaking of talented tight ends, also a possibility, although I feel like that one's becoming less and less by the day. And then also a couple of wide receivers, too, and Xavier Worthy and A.D. Mitchell. And in his first go of it in the calendar year 2024, Mel Kuyper only has one Longhorn among his first 32 picks. That would be A.D. Mitchell going to a team that would make a lot of sense at 28 with the Buffalo Bills needing to add playmaking pieces around Josh Allen on that offense. Gabe Davis, a free agent. Stephon Diggs, still under contract, and he is a big hit on the salary cap too if they decide to move on from him, but this guy has spent a couple years now disgruntled in Buffalo with his teammates and coaches and front office personnel having to defend the guy at seemingly every turn. It feels like he is starting to tip into the more diva than talent side of the diva wide receiver matrix. But maybe they do keep him around, but even still, they probably need to find one more playmaker for Josh Allen on offense we know that running backs, although they did take a use a second or third rounder on James Cook a few years ago, um, you can get really talented wide receivers throughout the first round of this draft, and A.D. Mitchell certainly qualifies as that. I think he makes a lot of sense to Buffalo at 28. And I think either he or Xavier Worthy would prove to be a great pickup for the Bills if they go in either direction. By the way, Mel Kuyper said he was considering one of two positions for Buffalo. The other defensive tackle, he had gone defensive tackle for the Bills there, says he would have had them selecting Tavondre Sweat. So the Bills, at least according to Mel Kuyper, thinking with a couple of Longhorns at that 28 spot. He has the Dallas Cowboys addressing the offensive line with offensive tackle Jordan Morgan out of Arizona. Look, you got a full slate of games, I believe, out of Tyron Smith this year. Cowboys offensive line played pretty darn well, especially as pass blockers, but do you expect Tyron Smith to have another healthy season going forward? And a lot of the rest of that offensive line continues to age as well. Tyler Smith, an exception. the also an exception too, but if you can go find another bookend tackle, you do it. And the Texans, even though they traded away their original first rounder, last year to move up to get Will Anderson. They do have the Browns first rounder this year at Watson Trade paying dividends. They addressed defensive tackle with their first rounder, according to Mel Kuyper. All right, coming up, it is a conversation with musician, comedian, and actor Craig Robinson. He's headlining at Cap City Comedy Club this weekend. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellen. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Greg Robinson is a longtime musician, comedian, and actor who is wielding those musical and stand-up skills here at Cap City Comedy Club this weekend. Two shows Friday, two shows Saturday, two shows on Sunday. Go to CapCityComedy.com to snag the tickets that remain. Craig, thank you so much for the time. How you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Welcome back to Austin. I know this is not your first time performing stand-up in this great city. You've been at the New Cap City Comedy Club before, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, what do you love performing stand-up? Uh, what do you love about performing stand-up in Austin?
2: The crowd lifts you up. You know what? I, I uh, One of my favorite stand-up stories is I was here for the Fun, Fun, Fun Fest, which y'all used to have. I brought my band here. We did Fun, Fun, Fun Fest. I was running on fumes. I ended up doing a show that night at another spot. I don't remember. It was indoor, outdoor. It was dope. And I just remember being so tired, but the crowd lifted me up. Like It was like, we got you. So uh, that's what I love about Austin. You know, It's like, they got your back. They're here to, to party and take it to uh, another level. So it was uh, one of my favorite places to perform.
1: So anybody who's unfamiliar with your comedic style, it is a blend of music and then more straightforward jokes. And then. Learning a little bit more about your entertainment past, you come from a musical family. That was uh, your initial passion, but you realized pretty quickly, I think in college, that comedy may be the best route for you. And so in Chicago, which is obviously a great place for comedy, you start thinking about doing stand-up. You eventually get on stage, but you admitted in a recent interview, it wasn't until you brought your keyboard on stage that it really unlocked things for you. What was it about bringing that keyboard on stage that allowed you
2: to feel comfortable being funny in front of people? because I had been doing that like all my life, whether it's church, home, anywhere. And then, you know, knowing how to play the piano, it set me apart and gave me this edge, but it was also a relaxing thing to just, you know, like as a security blanket, if you would. That's what happened. I just went up there and it was like, all of a sudden I was uh, mad comfortable. And in trying to get better at
1: stand-up, you're also looking for knowledge on the subject. And so you buy a book on stand-up comedy from uh, Judy Carter.
2: Judy Carter, yes, sir. Uh, Is
1: there anything that you have taken from that book all these years later that you're still applying to this day?
2: I remember one passage, she was talking about how we as comics, there's 300 people in there. 299 of them are cracking up tears in their eyes. There's one person who we're going to focus on is the one that's just like not laughing. And she was saying, it doesn't matter that you don't know that this is, you know, he lost his job. He's just having a drink before he's going to go crazy. But we we focus on that. So I think there's things like that that come up that I'm like, why well, am I focused on this person? You know, and I keep checking in to see if this person laughing. And then there's other stuff that I'm sure has like kind of seeped in that I'm not that, that I don't know if I can, you know, that I can't directly credit her but I'm sure there's some stuff in there. Uh, When I first got that book, I remember calling this comedy coach named Neil Lieberman in San Francisco. And he was like, Craig, the thing about that book is half of it is, you know, is right and half of it is wrong. And you won't know which half, being a young comic, you know. But uh, one thing he told me that I always remember, he said, if a joke kills, slow down. And if a joke bombs, slow down. So that's kind of stuck with me for, for the ages too.
1: Is slowing down when you bomb important because your tendency is to try and rush to that next thing versus do the uh, quasi norm McDonald thing and kind of uh,
2: relish in the awkwardness? Uh, yeah, I think it's because uh, your, your, your tendency is to try to get out of that situation, you know, as opposed to letting it just, you know, okay, bombed, all right, this is what this feels like, this is what it is, okay, let's see what else we got here. But, yeah, Norm was a genius that just, you know, that pauses and and, ta- and uh, taking his time and and milking a moment. Loved, loved Norm. It's interesting you say that about
1: being or focusing on the one of 300 people who may not be laughing because I've been that one person in the crowd before. It was at the Improv in Dallas, and it was this guy who was kind of doing a hacky version of the Blue Collar Comedy Tour Back when that was popular, I was in the back of the room. I didn't even think he could see me. I just didn't find him funny, so I'm not going to like put a fake smile on my face or like make it seem like I'm laughing. I'm just like sitting there watching, waiting for, for him to say something that was funny. And he literally tried to call me out at the back of the room, but I didn't want to get into it with the guy. So I just looked at the person next to me and made it seem like they, they were talking to him. He, it completely threw him off too. I feel bad in retrospect. I probably just should have started faking laughing at that point, but uh, he was completely off of his game after
2: that your reaction was genuine you know you deal with you you want to get involved who knows if this could be a different story if you did get involved you'd probably be you know just you know working at a. a who knows who knows what you would have chosen
1: who knows maybe i would have uh, tried a little bit harder when i was living in shy town to perform the stand-up thing i did did some open mics around town uh, 10 or so years ago, but uh, life has a way of distracting us from pursuing our passions. And uh, sometimes it's the people that love us most who are trying to dissuade us from pursuing our passions. Like I was talking to uh, Natasha Leggero last week, and she was about to make a big... Oh, just
2: went super viral, by the way. What'd she go viral for? Whoa, freaking story for you, bro. Uh, she she get went up after Bert Kreischer, who had uh- just taken his shirt off. Yeah, and then she went up on stage and there a flash of boobs for a second. It, it was it was hysterical. It was brave. But she did a thing. You know,
1: you're so right. I, was, uh, I I did see that. Remember, right? She she's got guts. She has serious yeah. guts. But she was talking about making a move to New York City, and her mom was trying to talk her out of it. Heard you talking about that. Your dad was like, "You've got this good teaching gig right now. You're gonna throw it all away to pursue your dreams." But sometimes. Only you know best, and you have to uh, come to that understanding on your own if that dream is going to fizzle. And so you take that leap uh, to LA uh, way back when, and I feel like you dodged a bullet in the process, Craig, because you were a teacher at that time. You're getting your, or you had gotten your master's in teaching, but teaching has become much more difficult in modern times. I've got a nine and seven year old at home right now. So I see it in person in the classroom sometimes we've got teachers dropping left and right because uh COVID crew screwed things up so badly. So congratulations on uh, pursuing your dream, keeping you from uh, having to deal with a, a bunch of broken kids in 2024.
2: Yeah, that was a, uh, you know, I, 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 I had some incredible kids that, uh, you know, some of them reach out to me to this day actually. Um, but um, I was there, you know, I was the, the fun, like doing music and stuff. And so it was, it was that stressful part of trying to you know discipline these kids and and they trying you every every day and yada yada so it yeah, it was a it was a trip but uh but yeah I'm, i am glad i got out of there
1: <laughs> so i heard you with the smartless guys i believe it, this was almost a, a throwaway line from you but you had mentioned maybe at some point wanting to do stir crazy on broadway
2: how serious they, they were bro- you about that they brought it up they was like, and they was like, "What, what would you and Sean do? And I was like, stir crazy the musical. And then, uh, and then, and then, you know, people have been like, wow, that's a cool idea. But it, it was just, you know, uh, improv in that. And I have thought about it since. So if he's down or whatever, but uh, yeah, I, I, I will be down for that. that would, that's an interesting idea. Yeah.
1: As far as current projects are concerned, uh, you are, are getting a ton of accolades for killing it. On Peacock. Uh just finished the second season. Is that correct? Yeah. Just finished the second season. Is there gonna be a Thank season you. three?
2: Uh I don't think so. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, me too. It's uh but you know I mean it could go somewhere else. We'll see what happens. But um right now it looks like it's uh it's not moving.
1: Regardless we, that
2: we, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say we had it was what it was the one of the best things I, I felt I've done. You know, it was, uh, I loved everybody on there. It was, it was an, an incredible experience, and I was looking forward to doing more. So, you know, it kind of pulled the rug from out of this.
1: You said you really enjoyed doing that show, not just because there was a curb-like quality to it, but there was also uh, a darkness to the show. It is a uh, dark comedy, after all. What was it about the darkness that you enjoyed? Is it just a, a mere matter of it really challenging you more as an actor to reach certain emotional places you haven't really had to go in the past?
2: There's definitely some of that, but I like the edge of it. You know, I like the, uh, uh, like like the not knowing what's gonna happen, and then you know, just being a part of something that uh, that I could be the light in. Um. So yeah, it was it was a lot of different components going on there, but uh, I really I just like something that you can you know, just kind of the grit. You know what I'm saying?
1: So last question now, Craig, uh, Natasha's husband, uh, Moshe Kasher just wrote a really good memoir and the foundation of this memoir is six different things that he's gone through throughout his life that really shaped who and what he is currently as a comedian, but also as a human being as well. I'm curious for you, is there something epiphanous from your past that all these years later is still so important in who and what you've co- become today?
2: Great question. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's at least six. Can I think of them? <laughs> um, I don't know, man. Damn. To, to be continued. To be continued. Uh, the, 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 the first thing that, that pops in my mind is my uh, rest, rest in peace. Uh, my, my godfather, Eddie Jackson, a.k.a. Chinese he, he said I remember asking him uh, and this was pivotal because I was like, uh, before I was a comedian, you know, I, I just was like wondering, how do you do it? What do you do? And I just heard, I was like, you think I could be a, 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 a good comedian? And I've never asked anybody that except him. And he said, you're going to be successful at whatever you do because you're a good person. And uh, that's that stuck with me a long time, man.
1: And that's a hard thing to be in the business that you're in as well. It's uh, surrounded with uh, a lot of sharks, a lot of uh, exploiters who are looking to use good people too, right?
2: There's some good ones in there too, though. But, you know, just got to it's swimming with sharks for sure. <laughs>
1: Cool. Well, uh, Craig, thank you so much for the time today. Craig Robinson is going to be at Cap City Comedy Club. Tonight's show is sold out, so you have no luck on Thursday. But Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, one of those shows is sold out. There are still a few tickets left for the remaining shows, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, two shows each night. Go to capcitycomedy.com to snag those tickets. Craig, thank you for the conversation today, man. Really enjoyed it.
2: Thank you, brother. Appreciate you, man. You're welcome. Coming
1: up, I'm keeping the stand-up thing going with a replay of my conversation with legendary comedian Brian Regan ahead of his headlining show at ACL Live this Sunday night. ACLLive.com for tickets. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elly. It's Sports Day Plus
0: with Trey Ellie.
1: Ryan Regan is a legendary stand up comedian who, over the course of decades, going all the way back to the 1980s, has proven to be a perfect blend of sophisticated writing and physicality. You can currently see him a couple of different places. One, as a co star in the TV series Louder Milk, starring Ron Livingston. The show is receiving a sort of second life on Netflix. On the stand-up side, Brian is currently in the midst of a national tour that is making some stops in Texas this week. That includes a final Texas stop here in Austin this Sunday at ACL Live at the Moody Theater. Doors open at 6, show starts at 7. You can go to ACLLive.com for more info and to snag tickets. Brian, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. How are you?
1: I am good, and I have to tell you that I am pretty impressed with what you are putting yourself through right now. You are doing six Texas cities in six days, starting in El Paso. You're in Lubbock right now as we speak on Wednesday just before noon. You're heading to Irving, Houston, and then Austin here on Sunday night at ACL Live at the Moody Theater. My goodness, man, you are getting a great taste of what this state has to offer culture-wise.
0: Yes, and the uh, I'm getting I'm doing Southwest Texas, Northeast Texas. I'm doing the whole Texas thing, and uh, <clears throat> the El Paso show last night was uh, was fun, and uh, I'm looking forward to the rest of the week.
1: So you're in Lubbock right now. Is anything standing out to you about Lubbock, Texas? I know you're on a tour bus right now, but have you uh, ducked your head out to see what Lubbock has to offer the people?
0: I wish I was adventurous enough to uh, say, well. Yeah, I got up at 5 in the morning. I I did my usual, uh, you know, one-hour run, and then I went and checked out all the sites of Lubbock. I have nothing to offer. I, I can only tell you what I can see out the window here, and I see like a big propane tank and a dumpster. I'm not suggesting that Lubbock doesn't have more to offer. I'm just saying that that's all I can see from my perspective.
1: I went to school at Texas Tech for in a year and a half. Lubbock doesn't that's have right. much more to offer than that. Just be glad that the wind is not blowing from east to west, because at that point you start to smell the slaughterhouses on the outskirts of town.
0: <laughs> well, uh, I'll consider myself fortunate for the for the moment.
1: There you go. In uh, uh, doing some prep for this interview, I, I listened to a couple of other interviews that you've done over time and. That included the conversation you had with Neil Brennan last year. Great conversation, by the way, a big fan of Neil. Uh, But during that conversation, you had talked about constantly making the effort to redefine yourself, to not uh, become stagnant with how you are going about uh, putting together an hour for your stand-up comedy, which you've been so good at for so long now. Is there a general theme or general idea that is behind the current hour that you're rolling out for the people here in Texas and beyond?
0: I don't know about a... A general theme. I think that's one thing that I've always liked about stand-up comedy is that you don't have to ha- have a theme to it. Like, you can put together a bunch of different thoughts and ideas and string them all together and call them a comedy show. And uh, that's one thing I love about it. I mean, I, I've got jokes about guns that I'm putting in, which might surprise people. I've, I've got jokes about mundane stuff too, you know, uh, Barbie dolls and how kids walk them. And, uh, you know, I I talk about a wide variety of things and then I just try to string it together and hopefully people, uh, come away enjoying it.
1: I think that's something that people may not realize who just know you, knows you as this guy, who's really funny, who doesn't cuss. It's not like you're not touching on taboo topics at times. You're just not using blue language in the process, it doesn't mean that you're not taking chances and you're not going places that may cause somebody who doesn't know any better or somebody who, quite frankly, probably doesn't belong at a comedy show uh, to gasp in horror that you're uh, saying something like that out loud into a
0: microphone. I very much appreciate you saying that because um, one of the challenges of doing comedy the way I like to do it is that if, if people hear I know you didn't use the word clean but a lot of times people use the word clean to define what I do and if somebody just hears that word but doesn't know or watch what I do they can have the wrong connotation of of of, of what it is that I'm doing I'm not doing a kitty show I'm not on stage you know twisting balloon animals for you know you you could bring a teenage kid but but it's um, I like to think that it's more interesting than other people might think it is because of the word "clean."
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Like, I've got a nine and seven year old at home right now, and I'm considering because they know how big of a fan of stand up I am and how how big of a nerd I am. Just to get to talk to uh, to uh, all different types of comedians, it's like, what would be the right time and the right type of comedian to try and introduce them to the art form? They're still uh, clearly way too young for just about any comic. Maybe Gallagher. Gallagher might work some of his stuff from the 1980s or early 90s. But in terms of like the type of stand-up comedy that I enjoy, it uh, got to be at least teenagers. But even then, like the, the stuff that I'm, I'm watching and listening to and laughing at, uh, there's a certain uh, worldly awareness that comes into play and also an experience in this world that makes a lot of uh, what you and plenty of others talk about uh, something that's worth laughing at for the audience.
0: Yeah, I agree. I um, I'm I, I like the fact that people out there can feel like they can bring their kids. Um, I'm not going to say anything that you're going to have to cover your kids' ears. You know, like I, I, I'm not going to go, "Oh my gosh, I shouldn't have brought," you know, our, our nine-year-old to the show. But at the same time, the nine-year-old is probably not going to be getting into a lot of what i'm talking about just because of what you're talking about you know it's like you have to have lived some life to to understand what certain comedy jokes are about um, i mean i like to do some stuff that kids would enjoy but i also am trying to do stuff that you know 60 70 year old people can enjoy too
1: <clears throat> yeah it's got a, a wide array of appeal i would say and one in, uh, of my favorite
0: moments, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I, I did a show one time, and a family came backstage after the show, uh, at, including their grandmother. She was like in her 80s, maybe, and they had like grandkids, Those was the whole gamut. And uh, they were all being very nice, we were taking pictures, and the grandmother said to me, So how long have you been in Vaudeville? <laughs> I'm like wow, vaudeville. <laughs> I I guess since 1910. I I don't know how to answer that question. But uh, <laughs> and her her her, her 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 kids were going, Grandma. It's not vaudeville. He's not doing vaudeville. <laughs>
1: Well, I guess that uh, that means that you're you're not going to be able to tell her about uh, doing stand up in whorehouses back in the late 1800s. Then either.
0: (laughs) Right, right. She had the wrong. She had the wrong uh, notion.
1: So, uh, one other thing that you talked about with Neil Brennan that I'm in complete agreement with you on is uh, having a sort of line anxiety. And you talk about the need for lines to be clearly marked and fair. I just have a general abhorrence to lines, Brian, because I just I don't know how much is actually worth standing in a long line for. Like, people love standing in lines here in Austin for really good barbecue – Well, look, I get that. I've I've eaten at a lot of those places. The barbecue is really good, but there's places here in town where the barbecue is just as good that doesn't require you to wait in a line. Now, (laughs) you take it as far as saying that there's like a basic courtesy or a lack of etiquette that comes into play with people when it comes to lines or somebody just walking up on, let's say, a counter at an airline or something where there's a line of people and it's like, hey, I just need help with this really quickly. It's like, actually, all of us just need help uh, pretty quickly. What do you think it'll take for society to return to a sort of etiquette and courtesy that seems to have just completely vanished over the last 15 to 20 years.
0: I I, I don't know. I, I I would hope that, you know, uh, that human behavior can have a pendulum aspect to it. You know, like maybe it can get so uh, unfair and out of control that people as a whole start going, Hey, why don't we be nicer and kinder again? Um, I remember years ago, Carol Burnett and gosh darn it, I'm going to I'm blanking on the other actor's name. They went on a uh, talk show circuit trying to get people to be nicer. <laughs> it was a short-lived thing. Um, who's the guy in Midnight Run? The uh, not Robert De Niro, but the uh, oh, uh, uh, Charles Grodin. Charles Grodin. Yeah, it was Charles Grodin and Carol Burnett did a talk show circuit, like they would go on the tonight show and different shows. And their whole message was that people are getting out of line and they should start to be nicer and kinder to each other. And I remember thinking this is a, an interesting, like uh, tour that they're on, you know, like they weren't plugging anything. They weren't plugging a movie. They weren't doing anything other than trying to get people to be nice. And I remember thinking, this is pretty cool that they're, Trying to take this on, I don't know how successful they were, um, but the effort was was to be commended, and I personally think that etiquette needs a resurgence. People kind of stopped considering etiquette in this world because for a while it was like people thought it had to do with like plates and you know what fork do you use and what cup do you use and that sort of thing and people go this is ridiculous who cares about this stuff well it's not so much that it's how we are with each other that's important and i think especially with technology and phones and all of this stuff i really think that there's a place for people to be a lot more interested and concerned about etiquette and how we are are with each other and how we care about each other and 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 how we love each other and um you know i i I just i i'm hoping that the pendulum gets if it gets so bad that people will want to improve how they are
1: he is stand-up comedian Brian Regan performing at ACL Live at the Moody Theater this Sunday at 7. Go to acllive.com to snag those tickets. Coming up, one more segment with Brian on the other side. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Final segment with legendary stand-up comedian Brian Regan performing at ACL Live at the Moody Theater this Sunday. A few tickets do remain. To grab those or for more information, go to acllive.com. Brian, and watching your second appearance on Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee with Jerry Seinfeld. At the end of that episode, you said something that I think is so profound. You were talking about... Uh, getting butterflies in your stomach and how butterflies are important. It shows that you are feeling something, it shows that you care. I think you called butterflies memory makers. I thought that was so poetic how you put that. I, I'm curious, though, outside of stand up comedy, or I guess assuming that you do still get uh, butterflies when you perform stand up comedy, what else gives you butterflies right now in your life, Brian?
0: Uh, wow. Um, I. I have some other projects that uh, I'm working on that are not stand up comedy oriented, you know, like new things for me. Um, I'm in a TV series called Louder Milk, which is getting new life. It just got moved to Netflix and it's one of the top rated TV shows on Netflix. Uh, Peter Fairley is a co creator. <clears> this <throat> show gave me an opportunity to, for myself, to see if I could act. And um, I'm getting some good comments about it. And so it's like a whole new cor- thing career-wise for me to, as much as I love stand-up, I mean, I love doing stand-up comedy, but to be able to act is a big thing for me. So that, would, that gives me butterflies. It gives me butterflies before I'm shooting a scene, wondering if I'm gonna be able to pull it off. Um, and I have a wonderful woman in my life and she gives me butterflies.
1: That's important. I can't speak to uh, to the woman in your life, but I've, uh, I'm have i about four or five episodes into Loudermilk. Livingston is great in that show, obviously. You do a bang-up job, too, though. Congratulations on
0: that. Thank you very much. They they gave my, my characters Muggsy. Mm-hmm. And in season one, they really only had one little storyline. I don't say little. They had, like, one storyline about Muggsy, maybe two. Season two, they gave me a lot more. And then season three... They really laid a lot of stuff on me, a lot of heavy emotional stuff. Uh, in fact, when I read it, when I read it, I was like, I don't know who they think I am. Why do they think I can pull this off? And it was one of those things where I better because I'm a, I'm a piece of a pie in this bigger show I can't fail. I, I have to do a, I have to do as a, a, a good enough job to pull this off. And uh, I'd like to say I think I did, but um, but it was a whole new experience for me. So being able to act, <laughs> funny story. They shot each season is ten episodes, mm-hmm. so they they shot it like a movie. Though e- each season we shot all 10 episodes like kind of at the same time. Mm. So you don't necessarily shoot everything in the same, in the correct order. You know, they, you might shoot a scene from season from episode four. And then that afternoon you're shooting a scene from episode one. So you have to keep everything in in your mind of what your character knows or doesn't know at that time. And I, and, and you get the script ahead of time, which they call the Bible. The Bible just means the entire script. I didn't know this term. And I asked Peter Farrelly one time, I said, hey, in this scene, he's the director and co-creator, I said, in this scene coming up, do I already know such and such happened? And he said, well, have you read the Bible? I was like, wow. Um, (laughs) Not in a while. Uh, (laughs) Which part of the Bible should I like reread to know how to handle this next scene? <laughs> and he meant, of course, the Louder Milk Bible.
1: So, what allowed you to ultimately unlock some uh, some emotional places or some vulnerability that you were at least uh, at the start a little bit concerned about in season
0: three? I, I, I don't know. There are a lot of people who. You mentioned Rodden Livingston. Yeah. He is an incredible actor. I watched, he's the lead, he plays Milk in the series, Ron Livingston, and I watched him, I watched him every take, every take, even takes that weren't used, even when camera's not on him, every moment was 100% believable when I watched him. I saw one scene that he did where I thought he was a little off track, only one and he stopped like after 15 seconds it said cut let me get on track and then the next take he was right back at 100%. So I only saw one scene whereas me i mean there they they say that there are certain actors who don't take notes, you know, they don't want notes because they feel they're gifted enough where they will decide for themselves. I don't want a director coming up to them. I need notes. Give me notes. <laughs> I need all the help I can get, you know. Um, and some of these moments you have to, for me, the, the only way I could pull it off was like, I, I need this to be me. You know, I, I, I'm not a good enough actor to be somebody else. I, I need it to be me. So if, if I can get it into my head that what I'm about to say as my character is me in that situation, then it then it feels real to me. And so that's how I did it.
1: Obviously, you're a little bit more well-versed on the stand-up side of things and acting, serious or otherwise. And Loudermilk is a great example of a dark comedy, by the way, for anybody who's curious to check out more. Uh, you can find it on Netflix. It's uh, one of the top shows as it currently stands. And Brian's role only increases over the course of the three seasons. Do you seek out notes when you're building a new hour? Or are you to a point with your stand-up career where you have a pretty good sense of what's going to work and what's not? obviously you have to get up on stage and work at least a little bit of it out, but are you seeking those same sorts of notes out with other stand-ups when you're building an hour?
0: Uh, that's a, a good question. Uh, Stand-up-wise, I like it to come from my mind. I like it to come from my mind and my point of view. Um, that doesn't... So I... The vast majority of it is coming from somewhere in there. That doesn't mean that if I do a bit somewhere that I'm working with a comedian, they might have a tagline or something, or they, they might say, well, how about if you say this, or how about if you say that? Yeah. Uh, and if it fits, and it feels like it's consistent with how I think, I'm certainly open to that. And so, yeah, I've gotten lines or little moments, little beats here and there that other comedians have suggested to me that I will incorporate if I feel it's... If it is fitting with how I think anyway, if it's a laugh that would work, but it's not how I think, I I wouldn't want to do it. Hmm.
1: All right. Last question now, Brian, I'm currently reading uh, Moshe Kasher's new memoir, and it's a really great read, entertaining, insightful. And it's based on the premise that there are these six different aspects of the life that he's lived that have really shaped who and what he is as a comedian and as a person as well. Is there any one pivotal moment that comes to mind for you from your life that has been instrumental in who and what you are today?
0: Uh, there have been a lot of moments in my uh, in my life. One of the biggest ones for me, career-wise, stand-up comedy-wise, was when I first started auditioning, I had no idea if, if I could do it, you know, like I auditioned one time and Nobody said anything. Like, it was like there was a comedy club in Fort Lauderdale, the comic strip, and they had an open mic night on Monday night. So I went and auditioned one time, nothing happened. I auditioned another time, nothing happened. After five auditions, this guy, Joe Mullen, he ran the club. I didn't know who he was, came up to me, and he's like this short Irish, like no nonsense guy. And he goes, Hey. <laughs> can I talk to you in the kitchen? And I'm like, uh, sure, I knew enough that he must have something to do with the club and I felt like this is positive. And he brought me into the kitchen, he goes, hey, I've been watching you over the last few weeks and uh, I think you got something. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, you just passed your audition, which was like, (sighs) I get get emotional thinking about it because it was life-changing. For me, you know, um, here's a guy who ran a comedy club who was giving me the green light to continue in this path that I didn't know whether I was good enough to do it or not. And so I passed the audition that night. He said I could go on every night from then on after the headliners. It was, that's a whole other story. They, they would throw locals on after the show was over in front of the audience as they were leaving. But that night when he said that i passed my audition that was in fort lauderdale i was still living with my parents in miami i was driving home that night on cloud 9 about what had just happened and i saw a shooting star that i had i had never seen a shooting star a shooting star just went right across my windshield and i went <laughs> If this isn't the most magical moment, you know, so um, so that moment will always live with me,
1: dude. Thank you for sharing. That was uh, that was touching, and uh, to say that you're you're good enough all these years later is obviously the uh, understatement of the the decade or maybe the century. He is Brian Regan. You know who he is. He's going to be here in Austin this Sunday. ACL live at the Moody Theater. There's still a few tickets remaining. Go to the acllive.com now to snag those because they will be completely gone by the time we get to Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon. Ryan, real pleasure, man. Thank you so much for the time today, and uh, best of luck with the trip through Texas.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, you, and thanks for chatting with me. All right, another show is in the books. Thank you so
1: much for tuning in tonight. We'll be back tomorrow at 6. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the night,
2: and hook them. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling.